Podcast One. Okay, are you recording? Hello, good people. Welcome along to episode 111 of the Howie Games Part A. Thank you to you all for listening, which has helped the show get to this point. Fantastic. The number of listeners continues to grow, and it will be super, super if you could all do me a favor and help in this process by thinking of someone you know who doesn't listen to podcasts, who you think would enjoy the show, and explain to them simply how to tune in. That would absolutely make my week. Alrighty, this week, one of the most recognisable voices in world sport, a man that is synonymous with football, Martin Tyler. For years he's been doing it. How his country needs him here, Cristiano Ronaldo, yes! Oh, yes! His team looked out on their feet. At times he looked out on his feet. That's extraordinary technique. On a night of superlatives here, Cristiano Ronaldo has a hat-trick. The voice of football, both English and international. And like many in the media, Martin had a sliding doors moment that led him onto a path that he has so successfully forged. In this episode, Martin describes in detail how he went from being a footballer himself to spending over 40 years talking about the game and its players. From the very first match he called to World Cups, his famous Manchester City versus QPR call in the dying moments of the 2011-12 EPL season, the keys to broadcasting and plenty more. So you search and try to find But you don't know where to go So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by For me, when the late, great Richie Benno was commentating cricket, everything seemed right with the world. It was just meant to be. Richie was cricket. It's the same for me with Martin and football. Enjoy the story of the man whose voice has been the soundtrack of the world game for over 40 years, Martin Tyler. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games, one of the most recognised broadcasters on the planet, the voice of football here in Australia and around the world, the great Martin Tyler joins us. A lot of excitement in the camp to see Martin over there in the UK. Good morning to you, Martin. How are you going? Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm going fine and, you know, it's not been the easiest part of my um, 75 years, the last uh, six or eight months the same for everybody around the world. It's it's tough going, but trying to be optimistic, trying to be positive. And I'm one of a very small minority, fortunate small minority, who is able to go to work and do pretty much what I was doing before all this happened. How, how's it going, Martin? We're here in Victoria. We're still in a lockdown. We've been in the longest lockdown anywhere in the world at the moment here in Victoria, but the case numbers are nowhere near where they are. Unfortunately for you in the UK, I don't want to go too much into the national health situation, but how are you dealing with it? And, and how is it day to day seeing the destruction that's being wreaked across England and Europe again for a second time now? 
I'm not really qualified to answer that question. All I can tell you is that football has been encouraged since June at the top level um, and down to now the grassroots level, really, where some crowds are allowed in at um, the six and seven steps and below. Um, five or six hundred quite, um, Premier League fans are going to find an, a local grassroots team to watch and get their fix of football but of course the games are all being televised at, uh, in the Premier League and therefore there's a lot of normality about what I do what's changed a little bit is travel has to be more careful yep. um, at the beginning when it restarted in, in the middle of June uh, I drove myself wherever um, one person one car park in the car park, get into the commentary position, to be tested thoroughly. Not not the swab tests, but certainly temperature tests and occasionally blood pressure tests and things like that. Um, sit down with the mask on, take the mask off to broadcast and to eat because we have to provide all our own food. Obviously, there's nothing on site. Uh, do the game, go back to the car and drive home again. That was, a, that was different, more of a solitary. Television is a really team game, you know. Yes. as much as the game on the field. And um, the thing I've missed the most is not being able to mix in the in the ground with anyone else, uh, really apart from the sound engineers and the co-commentator I'm working with. So what's it been like commentating without crowds? Has it been difficult? I haven't missed the crowds as much as people. I get asked this all the time, how is it commentating without crowds? But, of course, I'm desperate to see the fans back in the, in the grounds. If, it, if anything's ever shown how important how vital that they are to the game and sometimes probably uh, taken for granted. Well, now we yeah. can't have them. No one's taking them for granted anymore. We want them back. And every day I hope there's a, a tweak in the government's policy, but we have to respect what's being, what we're being told. But I turn up the fake crowd noise in my headphones. So you get a bit of... Uh, it's not exactly acting because it does feel as though there's a crowd there with the, with the noise. And if you just look at the pitch rather than the surroundings, you can get into that sort of dream world, if you like, of thinking it's normal. And, and hopefully the commentaries have been um, not too changed by the fact that we have no crowds. As a commentator that's a thousand levels below you, some of the things you've said that I've experienced this winter in Australia, I've been calling Australian rules football off television monitors. So we haven't been at the ground. I did some international cricket right at the end of our summer where there was no crowd. And I found sitting in front of the monitor, it's very strange. And it's now I'm commentating of a television screen. So I'm going to ask you a few technical questions as we go along, Martin, just for my yeah. own interest. But when you are at a Premier League game, are you commentating off the pitch or off the monitor? Oh, no, you, you're looking at the pitch. For The monitor's there for the what we call the cutaways, you know, the shot of the managers in the dugout who's in the stand. Yep. That's quite tricky now because in the stand they've got masks on. Yes. So identification isn't so easy yes. as it would normally be, you know. Uh, and uh, But that's always been the case. The, the monitor's there to help you. And obviously for the replays as well. So you, you, you get to see the replays, so which is very important. So, um, no, I, I, I look um, at the pitch, but obviously if you're commentating at home, and I, yeah. I congratulate you for what you're doing because I know how tricky it is. I, I, we do off-tube commentaries in, in the studios sometimes. So I, I, I know what it's like to work off um, just the television pictures. And then clearly if something happens and the television camera's 
miss the key point, then you are struggling because there's there's no way to yeah. um, uh, to work it out. But it, it, I think if you believe in your own broadcasting ability, which I'm sure you do, just strike the right note for yourself and you'll be striking the right note for the viewers because and the listeners because um, you'll sound like you should sound like. And, um, and don't... I don't over-labor the difficulty. I always try and say, in my commentaries, I try and say at least once, thank you to the football authorities for allowing this to happen and to the mm. health departments. Uh, health, Public Health England is very much at the forefront of allowing this to happen. And that we are, you know, we are the privileged ones and we're trying to help you. Um, we're not the best thing, but we try to be the next best thing, you know. I wouldn't congratulate me on the job I've been doing all winter till you've heard it, Martin. I wouldn't get too carried away with the congratulations. Eh? Well, there's so much to talk about with you, but as a young bloke back at school, primary school, uh, higher school, where was that and what was the great dream? What was Martin Tyler going to be when he was 12 and 13 um, I, in Martin I, Tyler's mind? I wanted to be a professional sportsman, um, uh, both football and cricket. Uh, I had a go at both, certainly at 12 or 13. I had my aspirations, probably more at cricket at that age because my family on my mother's side played um, minor counties cricket, played for Cheshire, which is yep. uh, just up in the northwest of England where my mother came from. I was born in Chester, but I, my dad came from down south. So I, my grandfather played a few games of first-class cricket for a minor counties 11 and I've told this story, it won't mean anything to your generation, but cricketers used to drop in. And a member of, I believe, I think in Australia they call them the Invincibles, the 1948 uh, Australian tour to My England. My word, led by Don Bradman. Yeah, led by Don Bradman. But um, Colin McCool, yes. who, like, he was a member of that squad, and he came and bowled some leg spinners to me when I was about five years old. Ah. And he was playing league cricket up in the northwest of England and he knew some members of my family. So, and I thought, goodness me, there's a test bowler. <laughs> Even at that age, I knew what test cricket was. And so, so I tried to be a cricketer. I got as far as playing for my county at schoolboy level, Surrey. Uh, and and also grew up with Bob Willis, who went on to Captain England, and my great friend who passed away just a few months ago and is sorely missed. Yes. Um, we we, we um, were flatmates together when he started out his and his career. You were flatmates? You were living with Bob Willis? I was, yeah. Yeah, I was there. Right. The, I was there the day he got caught up for England for the first time to tour Australia in 1970. Uh, we, <laughs> uh, I, he went off to work. Um, he was coaching and I I had a job. I, I was trying to be a footballer then. <laughs> I had a job, a uh, daytime job. And um, I remember saying to him on that Monday morning, I said, I won't see you tonight. You're going to Australia. Ha, ha, ha. Because it was a bit of speculation. He was a, a call-out player. Somebody got injured. So he was a replacement. Wow. And he phoned me about 10 o'clock at my job and said, um, I'm going on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, so anyway, so he said, can you come back home? And because the phone is ringing off the hook and I've got to go off and do all these media things. So I went back home and it was really my first contact with journalism that I listened to all these journalists ringing up. And, can you get Bob to call us back? Can you get Bob? And, and it was fascinating. I had about four full scat pages of messages when he finally came home about 10 o'clock that night. And then I went to the airport with him and his parents to see him off on the Thursday. And uh, so he, 
that sort of showed to me that I was a bit short <laughs> compared to my flatmate <laughs> in terms of ability. Just and on then that if you had to compare yourself, Martin, to a modern English cricketer back in the day, who who were you? Were you a Flintoff, a, a Stokes, a Root, a Tavaray, a Botham, an Embry? Were, what were you? I was Tavaray plus. Oh no, a slower version of Tavaray. Well, in those days, cricket was so it's so different now. It was in those da- in those days you were taught, and I, I got a scholarship to a, a famous cricket school in. Uh, in South London, run by an ex-England player called Alf Gover. It was where everybody went. And I got a school scholarship to go there through one winter. And all they taught you was to defend your wicket, you know. that was So blocker was the term, and I was a blocker. Um, and Bob, Bob, bless him, he always used to tease me about this, even till the last year or two. We played a – he was in the under-15s, and I was in the first team because I'm a little bit older. And – he watched me play at Purley Grammar School. for My school was uh, Royal Grammar School, Guildford. Ooh. And we had to chase about 160. But if you didn't get it, there was no, you didn't lose. It wasn't an overs game. It was just a game, you know. We finished at 25 for five, <laughs> at having batted for <laughs> the best part of two hours. And I was 11 not out. Reading, Reading's and good for the average, Martin. So that should... Um, I should tell you what kind of, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I, the reason I'd stopped playing cricket because one, because Bob was obviously, you know, I've reflected glories. I've followed his career. Um, we did play a couple of seasons together in school cricket and um, one season in the Surrey championship together. But um, when he moved out, Jeff Howarth, who then went on to captain New Zealand moved in because he was at Surrey at the time and obviously a long way away from home. And he capped in New Zealand. So in the three, I came up a bit short, you know, but they capped. One of of the great days in my life was England played uh, New Zealand and they were the two captains and they smuggled me into the pavilion at Lords, which takes a bit of doing. And they went out and tossed up together for the start of the test match. And when they walked back in, they gave me a little wave, just a tiny (laughs) little wave. But I knew enough. Um, so that's the most reflected glory ever. It's funny you say Jeff Howarth. I had the great Ian Smith, New Zealand commentator on this show and a fine cricketer, and he talked about the underarm delivery at the point where Jeff Howarth was the captain was. of New Zealand in, in that famous, famous day. So I didn't and, think... And, I, and, and Trevor Chappell came and stayed at our flat. Did he? Pre yeah. or post? Uh, I can't remember. To be honest, I knew you were going to ask me that. I, I think probably pre. I think probably pre as well, Martin. Yeah. I digress. I didn't expect we were going to be talking about cricket. So football, tell me about your career as a footballer on the pitch before we get to what happened off the pitch, Martin. What type of player were you? And you were a professional playing in the leagues? No, I was um, I was not a professional. I was a non-league player um, and uh, I played in some good company, but I wasn't particularly good. I was a, a striker, big six foot three striker, good in the air, not particularly good at anything else. <laughs> but right. uh, I, I, I love playing. I was very enthusiastic. I, I lived a, quite a, a, an, an athlete's life, if you like. I tried to get, yep. I didn't know the term marginal gains then, but that's what I was trying to do. And um, yeah, I played. I played for university. That was probably stopped me going anywhere else because at university, by the time I came out of university, you're 21, and that's too late to break in, really. Um, 
And then I played in the highest level of non-league football as there was at the time, but only sporadically. I mean, I, as a, I was in a bad team, and as a forward, if you're in a bad team, you don't get any chances, you don't score many goals. So, uh, But I had a go, and now I look back on it, I'm proud that I did play those 25, 30 games at that level. Did you have a great moment? I remember scoring my first goal in that league, um, and that, yeah, that was a, that was personally a great moment. Uh, I'm one of those people for whom if you don't score when you go on the pitch, then you haven't done your job properly. Uh, I think it's less so now. I don't see those kind of guys. Alan, Alan Shearer, my name is ridiculous to bracket them together, but Alan would count the goals he scored against his kids in the in the garden. I think. <laughs> So, Martin, you're a footballer trying to make his way. Yeah. How did you move into the world, not of television, we'll get to that. Let's just go through the process slowly, if you'll indulge me. How did you get into the world of journalism? Well, I did used to write the reports in the university magazine of um, or the university newspaper of our games, the, the University First Eleven, um, largely to make sure that they got the scorers right. Uh, <laughs> to put yourself in. <laughs> um, I'm sure there was some of that in it. Um, but I, I used to do that. Somebody had to do it. And it publicised the team. And, and we had one one or two really good players. And, and so the level was quite good. And, you know, we, we played competitive games in the university scene, but we also played, we played Norwich City reserves and things like that. So it was, it was good. It was, it was good stuff. So, um, and... That, so I had done a little bit of writing, but that was not with any career in mind. Uh, and then I went into market research when I left university because you had to do something. You were a teacher or an accountant or a civil servant or uh, mm. if you were very lucky, a broadcaster, but nobody I knew got anything like that. You know, you'd be one in a zillion trying to get a job there. Um, so I ended up in market research, didn't like it very much and really made it secondary to playing this non-league football, which was training two nights a week, playing Tuesdays and Saturdays and things like that. Um, a lot of games. Uh, and just, just, but not making any money. And in the end, uh, I got to a situation where I was enjoying playing still, but my, my market research was going nowhere. Mm. I just didn't want to be doing it. And uh, my parents got me the job. So I had felt a loyalty to them. It was, friend of a friend and he's not doing anything yeah he can come in a graduate do make a career market research wasn't for me um so what happened was i had a uh, my girlfriend at the time who was from university she was seeing me sort of i don't know, vegetate really not getting anywhere except enjoying the football and playing in a bad team i didn't even enjoy that very much and not playing very well myself i didn't enjoy it very much and but one day she said to me look there's a football magazine starting I, I know this because one of my friends from school is the art editor on it, and I've been in touch with him. <laughs> it came up in conversation, and I thought of you, um, and here's the number of the guy who's starting it, and he was a, actually he was from the Southern Hemisphere, he's from New Zealand, and so I phoned him up out of the blue, not any thoughts about it, and, and I said, is there a, is, I hear you starting a football magazine, is there any jobs going? And he went, this is a top secret project. How do you know about it? And all I knew <laughs> about journalism was uh, a journalist never reveals his sources. <laughs> so that, that, that's, that's literally what I said. Anyway, I, I bluffed my way into an interview, and I got the job, 
um, as a staff writer. It wasn't a magazine like Contemporary Newsy. It was what they call a part work, which you collect in weekly parts. Oh, yep. And then they, they you can also buy not just sort of the, the, each part, but a binder to put them in. I've, I've got them here all bound on the, uh, in my in my bookshelf. Um, uh, and it meant that there was no weekend work, so I could keep playing it, which is great. Back to Martin in a moment. Next up on the show, an episode that is right up there with one of my favourites, True Story, featuring UFC champion Robert Whittaker, a man that competes in a brutal sport that requires brutal sacrifice. It seems hell on earth when you're trying to strip weight. I don't know if that's an over-exaggeration. You said, you've, what did you say, you you fight at 84 and yeah. you're normally 96? Yeah. So talk me through the process, the mental and physical process. I've seen it with jockeys, but of trying to strip weight. Um, it is It is terrible. <laughs> it is, is it? terrible. It is, is, is it? Honestly, you can't explain it. You can't explain how bad it is. You can't. Try Try. You used a beautiful analogy before. Why is it so terrible? Because you've, oh mate, you've never felt anything like thirst, true thirst, true dehydration. If like where to the point where you're losing your hearing, you're losing your sight. You your mouth feels like sand. You can't sleep. You're you've got no energy. It's like thirst and hunger are the two worst things in the world, and I, I wish it upon nobody. And um, honestly, it. It is it is terrible to to to, to go through. So, to, like you haven't experienced true thirst. Dehydration is the worst, the worst thing in the world. There is nothing like it. It is. It makes you forget everything. It makes you not want anything. There is nothing in the world more important to you than like a sip of water when you're that thirsty. That's the man known as the Reaper, Robert Whitaker. Up next. All right, let's get back to Martin. So the obvious question, Martin, when all the weekly parts were eventually done and dusted and the magazines completed and finished, what did they say to you then? So they actually said to me, oh, well, you've, you've done okay. You can stay with the company, um, but you'll have to write about something else. And I said, have you got any sport? No. And what were you going to put me on then? Well, we're doing a, a sewing um, uh, <laughs> uh, part called Golden Hands, which is what to do, you know, all the skills that you could do, you know, knitting and sewing. And how's your cross stitch? Uh, anyway, I, yeah, I sort of balked at that. Um, <laughs> and I, saw, I sort of went freelance, which was a big word at the time and mm. not, not big money. One of which was at, right out of the blue was a, a, a shock. For me, uh, there was a famous guy who was a player, a manager, and then a very famous TV pundit in England called Jimmy Hill. Mm. Jimmy's looking for somebody to write his column every week because he's too busy. Um, uh, would you like to do it? And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, great. So when was this? So this was in the summer of 73. Uh, so I started writing it. In, uh, so I did it for about... 10 weeks, I suppose. And what I would do is write it in longhand and drop it yep. through. He lived in West London. and I'd go to his house, drop it through the letterbox, never saw him. <laughs> so that's the backdrop. Then I get a call from London Weekend Television where I'd met a few people doing my part work work saying, there's a job going here. We've met you. We think, you're, you know, we like the idea of somebody who's a graduate coming into the department who um, obviously got something about them and loves football. 
Um, and I went, yeah, what, what does it involve? And they said, well, you, you work Saturdays and Sundays. And I went, oh, no, no, I, I went, I play. Yeah. I, can't, I, can't, I can't do that. So I said, look, thanks, but no thanks. This, this is where fate takes a hand. The following Friday, I delivered to Jimmy Hill my copy. And this time, for some reason, I rang the doorbell and he answered it. He said, oh, nice to see you. Thanks for all you're doing for me. Come in and um, we'll have a, have a chat. If you got, I said, if you've got five minutes, I have. Absolutely. So he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, funny enough. I said, you, you, you used to work at London Weekend Television. I just had an offer to work there. And he went, yes. And I, I went, well, I can't do it because I'm playing. And he went, what? He said, well, he knew where I was playing. And he said, I was 27 or something, 26, 27. He said, how good are you? I said, well, I'm, I'm keen. <laughs> <laughs> I give it my best shot. He said, look, I'm telling you, this is a wonderful opportunity. You never know where it might lead you, were his very words. You never know where it might lead you. Go, go and take the offer. Oh, I said, well, I've said no now. Anyway, literally I went home, picked up the phone. He was a very powerful man, Jimmy, charismatic. And he really got to me that morning. I rang up and I said, look, I'm really sorry, but I've had second thoughts. Is the job still vacant? And the other end went, I don't know, maybe. I don't really know. <laughs> and I said, well, is there any chance of coming for an interview? Yeah, if you want, yeah. So I went in and got the job. And um, I've worked behind the scenes in television for a year, stopped playing at any level, really played for fun, and charity games, things like that. And... Um, and after a year, I knew I didn't want to be in the uh, studios on a Saturday afternoon. I wanted to be out doing something. And this was the route out. So I had a go at it. And of course, when you're in television, it's a lot easier yep. to catch the ear, in this case, of the people who matter. So I went and did, for my own fun, a couple of... Um, a couple of sound only sitting on the gantry with the main commentator, the great Brian Moore, who was um, the man of the moment at that time and for many years. And then I had, of course, the ear of the, the person who might employ a commentator. So, so you, you recorded your own call, did you, of the game? Yeah, really basic uh, cassette recorder, really basic and just wow. sat there. and Yeah, but of course... Um, you know, when when they, they had to let me go to do it, I had to have a pass to get up onto the gantry, so they knew I was doing it. So I would pitch up the next week, and they said, so I, did, I did one, and I think I might have done a second. And then out of the blue, one of the ITV companies called Southern Television, which is now called Meridian, from based in Southampton on the South Coast, they rang up the person who I'd um, played my cassette to and said, we're short of a commentator. Uh, over Christmas because our commentators away. Do you know anybody who might be available? We've rung around, we can't find anybody. And I, I was in the room when this call happened and I knew, I just knew that that's what it was about because he turned his back on me on his swivel chair and started talking out to the window, not to, into the room towards me. And I sort of guessed and half of me was going, oh, please give me the chance. And the other half was going, please don't give me the chance because <laughs> I'm totally ill-equipped. All I had was, was um, you know, 10 years of playing, really, and being coached by some good people. Mm. But I, I'd had some good... So I, I, had, I had a bit of background in which to, from which to talk about the game, but no skills in how to talk about the game, and, except I'd watched a lot of football on television. So the, the, the date came round, and I... December the 28th, 1974, and off I went to Southampton to um, to commentate on this game, which is about the third time I'd ever done it. 
Um, and how do you reckon you went? Uh, it must have been terrible. Must have, must have been <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I, all I know is the, um, the match director, who, of course, as you will know, holds the greatest sway. He, yes, yes. And at the end of the game, he said, uh, oh, well done, old boy. Um, <laughs> we've got another game in a month or so. Would you like to do that? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah thank you. And, um, and I guess people have been saying to me, we've got another game in whatever, 48 hours ever since, really. And um, I've always said, yes, thank you. And that's how it started. So a long story for, I guess, a long career, really. But uh, that was so lucky. So many things fell into place in that sequence that I've just described to you. Uh, I, I look back on it. I can't really believe it happened, but it did. For like so many people in their positions in television, Martin, it's often sliding doors, and you've described a perfect sliding doors moment. So it's it's eight years later, and you're commentating the you've been commentating the World Cup in 1982, wouldn't you, been? I did I did the 78 World Cup actually, but right. only as very much the junior. Although I got I got lucky again because of the weather in Argentina. It was a winter in Argentina, and, and we got um, moved around, and I got all the look at the no, no World Cup games, a little game. Um, and I, I, t- I tell you one little story about commentary. Um, we were given, when, when I knew I was going to the World Cup, they go, gave me the games. And my first ever World Cup finals game was Mexico against Tunisia, which was not prime time for the British audience. No. But I, I, I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to go. So I, 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 Mexico were playing in... Um, Germany. For some reason, they were warming up for the Argentina World Cup playing in Germany. I, I guess the reason must have been financial. So I went to see them play at um, a German club ground, and they got a penalty. And the captain, Arturo Vasquez Ayala, took the penalty and <laughs> put it to the goalkeeper's, I think the goalkeeper's, this is important the story, really, the goalkeeper's left. And anyway, to, to see the faces, you weren't getting video recordings or anything. You wanted no. to know the faces. So after the game was over, I wasn't going back to England till the next day. So I went and, and sort of hovered around the, the team bus and they, um, uh, where the players were waiting before they went back to their hotel just to look at the faces again. And I saw Vasquez Ayala and in pigeon Spanish, or, uh, uh, I don't think I had any Spanish really, but I said, <laughs> I, 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 I said, always that side, always with the, with the penalty that side. Yes, he said, see, si, see. Si. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> what happens in the, in the first game I ever do, <laughs> Mexico get a penalty. Yeah. And I summoned up all my courage and said, well, he always puts it <laughs> that side and bless him. He did. Ah! And that, and you know, that was another lucky break. Mm. And then four years later, yeah, again, I was very, very fortunate. And that's the only world cup final I've ever done for British television. So you're going to the game on world cup final day. It is the biggest sport event on the planet as far as viewers and interest does it ever come into your mind at that stage, Martin, the size of the audience you are broadcasting to, therefore the size of your success or failures that you're broadcasting to? I think not so much the size of the audience, but the size of the assignment. Occasion. 
I can I can remember looking in the mirror, brushing my hair, as I picked up my bag to go to the game, saying, "When you come back and look at this mirror again, a lot will have happened." Yeah, <laughs> I remember my word. That. I remember that. Uh, my biggest um, worry was the first uh, goal was Paolo Rossi had scored three two and going into the final, and his pre- previous game three and two, and there was this real sort of scrum of a. Uh, a situation close to goal and the ball ended up in the Germany net and, and Rossi wheeled away as he had been wheeling away in all the other games and I wasn't sure I'll be honest with you I wasn't sure but I went with Rossi uh, because obviously it's a massive story he scored again you know mm. and it, it was the first goal in the final um, and about a minute and a half later they came on into my earphones from London this, obviously I'm in Spain they came on in London and said we've had a look at it again and, and you know, my heart virtually stopped. And you were absolutely right. It was oh. Rossi. But that pause oh. between we've had a look at it again and you were absolutely right was it seemed forever. Martin, you've got a long association with SBS in Australia and you work with Les and, and Johnny Warren and you mentioned Craig Foster. So you've seen a lot of the Socceroos in action. Frequent listeners to this podcast know that my kids always find a little bit about the guest, and then they ask a question of their choice. Now, you get my 10-year-old first. She's my daughter. Her name is Sky Martin, but she operates as the Pickle is her nickname. You get uh, – these are much more hard-hitting than what I can give you. Hopefully you can hear this. This is coming over 12,000 kilometres. This is my 10-year-old to you, Martin. Hi, Martin. Pickle here. A while ago, we were lucky enough to have Ange Postacoglu on the podcast, and he was a great – coach of the Socceroos, but my all-time favourite player from the Socceroos was Timmy Cale because I loved how he did heaps of headers. Who was your favourite player for the Socceroos? Well, I know Timmy Cahill very well and I would be uh, um, very much on on your side on that pickle. I think uh, you're spot on with your judgement. Uh, Mark Schwartz lives very close to me as well, so I have to be give him a mention right. too. But the one that this is from left field, and you won't remember. Yep. Um, Test me, Charlie Yankos. Oh, Charlie Yankos, he of the long range bomb. Yankos got up his sleeve this time. It's a great goal, Charlie Yankos. was totally deceived well Argentina would have known what to expect and I think they would have felt that that was out of range but not for Australia's captain well he he made that game um, in the bicentennial gold cup in uh, uh, 1988 yeah it's a strange story about I was working for your ABC and the powers that be didn't show the game live and and Australia had this wonderful win over the world champions. Yes. So they had to put the game out, the whole game out the next day, I think by public demand. <laughs> We're talking of a party for the Socceroos, but it'll only be contained over the next few hours, but it begins now. After that, they'll be thinking of the final. A wonderful night for the Socceroos and the game in Australia. A draw would have been enough, but Frank Arok's team surpassed itself. But I've got to mention somebody else here, especially in relation to your children. <laughs> in, um, 
1988, I took my eight-month-old son. Um, this is not for radio, but for no. you. That oh, is the final of the bicentennial. Oh, look at him. Yeah, yeah what there. a little champion. He, he was eight months old. <laughs> but at some point, my, my then wife <laughs> came out with me and, and we had a wonderful time. We had family in, uh, in, in Australia. And so we, it was a family trip as well as a work trip. But Adam, my son, who's now 33, he's just turned 33. <laughs> so you can work out he was born in 87. So he was there before he was one in 88 in Australia. But um, Eddie Thompson took us out for dinner. And we had to leave Adam behind. And poor Wade babysat my son. And for that, I have never forgotten how uh, what a wonderful wow. thing it was. And he was in camp. They were playing this tournament. And he, <laughs> we, left, we left Adam, our firstborn, uh, with, with poor Wade. And he did a wonderful job. Uh, so... I think maybe even topping Charlie Yankos, I'd have to go for right. Wade again. Well, that, that is a good selection. I, I ask you this, then I want to ask you some short, sharp ones. But I'll, I'll tell you a brief story, Martin, that is rumoured to have happened in Australian football. And I've actually spoke to a couple of people about it over the last week, and I haven't been able to ascertain the truth. But a lot of people, I don't know if it's urban legend, but back in the NSL, the National Soccer League days, from what I'm told, there was a television coverage, I think it was being done post-produced, and they missed a goal, Martin, for some particular reason. The camera was off somewhere else, so a goal was missed. Now, this urban myth tells the story that the director, post-game, got all 22 players back out on the pitch, got the cameras rolling, and recreated the goal so it could be put in the highlights package, Martin. Now, I don't know whether that is urban myth or not, but of all your travels and all the games you've covered, you must have seen some unusual things, Martin. Anything that springs to mind, not necessarily a recreation of a goal, but you must have seen some funny stuff in some funny places. There is a story over here that that did happen. This did was, it? Yeah, that it happened at Brentford, I think. And the players were all asked to go out onto the pitch and, and they, they, they did it very quickly. It was just a shot going in the net, I think. I, I don't think, and maybe only a few players went out and did it. But I think, I think that genuinely happened. That was just before my time. Um, I don't know. I, I, I am such a, a respecter of broadcasters. I know it's a wonderful job, but we're all a bit... Um, well, There's a great fraternity of commentators, you know, because we yes. all suffer from the same angst, which is, one, we have to get there on time. Um, and if we're delayed, uh, and that's probably probably the worst experience I've had not getting you know, getting stuck. I got stuck on the, there's an orbital ring road in, in around near, I'm quite close to an entrance to it, called the M25. Yeah, I know it. And there was a game at West Ham, which is the other side of London to where I am. And uh, there'd been a hurricane and the road was blocked. And I was stuck for an hour and a half between the junction I went on at and the next junction, which oh. I could get off at. And the police car went by on, on the hard shoulder uh, very slowly, and I and I said, stop, stop, stop. I'm commentating on this game at West Ham this afternoon. It was West Ham against Everton. And um, can you help me? Can you get me some... And, and the uh, helpful policeman said, they'll have to get somebody else, won't they? <laughs> 
um, which wasn't what I wanted to hear. <laughs> Don't you know who I am? <laughs> yeah. No, I was none of that. I'm, I'm pleased, and I hope I've never, ever said that. Um, and um, I have nightmares still about not getting to games. I'll be, I'll be in the commentary position, the game's about to start, and then actually I'm sitting on top of a train, and the train pulls out <laughs> along the side of the ground, and, and the game's disappearing into the distance, and, and and so we're all we're all deeply paranoid about not getting there, um, and of course you know it, it is a job with um, so many decisions to make, the words you wish you hadn't said, the words you wish you had said. You think of your best lines on the way home. Yes. A rather weary one from Vieira. Giggs gets past Vieira, past Dixon, who uh, comes back at him. It's a wonderful run from Giggs! Sensational goal from Ryan Giggs! In the second period of extra time, he's cut Arsenal to ribbons, and the team with ten men go back in front 2-1. So I think that really what what i've seen is all i'm trying to paint the picture of the mental state not just of me but yep. every commentator you could name would be feeling like this it's just that nature of the job but um i wouldn't swap it for the world how do you deal with your own performance martin you know in the world for me now social media by gee you get instant feedback about how you've gone you don't just get blokes yelling over the fence how do you deal with it when you've walked away from a game and you're not entirely happy with it or you think you made a mistake with something is it something you learn with experience to deal with does it sit with you for another week or is it just out your mouth and out your ear how do you deal with those times when you haven't actually got it right which is a rarity for you no doubt no, no, I, I, I'd probably say to you, I'm satisfied maybe. I do, a, let's say, ballpark 100 games a season. I'd be satisfied with four or five, to be honest. Really? So, yeah, yeah, because it, wow. you can't, it's not scripted. You can't, um, you can't mark yourself for your performance. You, the, the social media thing, if I was maybe even 10 years younger, certainly 20 years younger, I would do it. I don't do it. I, 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 I don't have a Twitter account. Um, I, so I know there must be things said. I, I, I think I said to you earlier about people think I support a team. So if I do a game between Manchester United and Liverpool, the Liverpool fans will say I'm biased in favour of Man United. Man United fans <laughs> will say the opposite. But of course, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But I don't have to read it and, and I choose not to. When you say that you're happy with four or five games, mm. like how do you deal with the other 95? Do you lie in bed and think about them or is it just you realise that is part of your job that you're never going to be perfectly happy with what you've done over a 90-minute-plus? Yeah. That's it. That's it. If, if there's a, you know, hopefully, very occasionally, there are things that I really should have done better at and therefore they're harder to get over. But... Um, no, I don't, you know, every, every game, the next game is the most important game. But, um, you know, you, you haven't asked me this, but most people go, oh, what's the most important game you've ever commentated on? The next one is the answer is glib, but it's true. That's the end of Martin Tyler, part A. So much more to come. Stick around for part B. See you there.